Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders Network Featuring tales to terrify And far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 522. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction, The Armour Embrace by Doug C. Souza, originally published in Writers of the Future, Volume 33. And for a special treat, our Mr. Jeremy Sal is narrating. First time, I think, on the mic as well for Jeremy like this as well. Ooh-hoo! And because it is the end of the month, we've got Jim in the house with his science news. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Can you hear these bloody seagulls, man? Just to give you a heads up as well before we get into that main show. Over on Patreon, you know, as you know, this is how to you know support we Silent Vera's part five just landed. And Red Dwarfs, that the, that whole season of season one, I've finished that now and I'm recording season two now. And that's going to go up around about, I think it's the beginning of February when that goes up. Or maybe the middle of January possibly, I'm not 100%. But please, if you if you want to support her, that is the best way. And you don't get any ads in the show as well, you get that as well. So please think about doing that. You know, my goal... And this is the goal I've had for a long, long time, is to have 500 over there on Patreon. And it doesn't matter if it's like a pound, a dollar, you know what I mean? That would just be awesome, to be quite honest. If we had 500 folks there, you know, even $1 a month, 
that would just be it just means you know if we've got 500 we're kind of covered and i think now if i look on my little tab there because i go on a patreon all the time as well you know what I, mean? I think we're up to 380 so that's only 120 folks you know 120 out of about five and a half listeners a week five and a half listeners five and a half you know thousand people listen Come on, we can do that. Let's inch up. I'll give you a little heads up next week if it's went up or went down from 380. So, please, if it's a, if it's a dollar, get yourself over there and support her. We have some fantastic content. And this one is coming. And I'm, I think Jeremy obviously likes Doug E. Souza, and certainly I do as well. And, I mean, Jeremy's putting his name there with a narration as well. So, like I say, main fiction... The Arm Embrace by Doug C. Souza. Originally published, like I mentioned just at the top of the show, Writers of the Future, Volume 33. Doug C. Souza had quite a year in 2017. One of the highlights, beside meeting the other 12 finalists, was when Kevin J. Anderson pulled him to a side just before the Writers of the Future award ceremony to tell Doug that he had requested to present the award because he had read this story, The Arm Embrace, and really enjoyed it. Later this year, Doug C. Souza has another story with Asimovs, and you can find them at DougCSouza.com. Now, like I say, this story is narrated by our one and only Mr. Jeremy Sal. Jeremy is a Mediterranean-blooded mongrel who was born in 1995 in the outback of Australia, where he was raised by wild dingoes. Now he writes about galactic nightmares, little traumas, and lots of neon and alcohol. You can find his work in Nature, Abyss and Apex, Lightspeed and Tor.com, Tales to Terrify, and episode 509 of Starship Sova, which he hopes you'll check out and not hate it. He is represented by the agent John Gerald and hopes to sell a novel soon. This is his second... All right. Now you see... I'm not getting too old. This is his second narration on Starship Silver because he didn't learn his lesson the first time. He carves out a living in Sydney, Australia with his awesome family where he drinks too much gin and he does mind you. He certainly does. I've seen many a picture of Jeremy with his little glass of gin there. Too much, Jeremy. Far too much. Mind you, I'm doing... Excuse me, Jeremy. I'm doing this dry January. It's a 30... I'm recording this now. It's the 30th of January and still... Still haven't had a little drop this month, man. Right, anyway, Jeremy watches too many cult films and makes too many dark jokes. And you can find them at jeremysal.com or at jeremysal on Twitter. So, The Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Armour Embrace by Doug C. Souza, Narrated by Jeremy Zal. My mountainous mech suit isn't built for subtlety. The steel talons scrape against the sidewalk as I creep behind Flora. She rips around so fast her light brown locks drape in her face. Flora doesn't scream, just brushes away her hair and gazes at me, a ten-year-old girl facing a ten-foot Leviathan mech soldier of the Slayer class. I'd promised myself I'd just watch her for a short spell, you know, to convince myself she's going to be okay. Keep the walking tank hidden as she strolled home from school. I imagined her with a group of bubbly friends, chatting about goofy things. But she was alone. Quiet and alone with her head down. Not the playful flora I remembered. After watching her walk by, 
I renegade on my promise and snuck up behind her, not having any idea what I'd say or do. A grin spreads across Flora's face. She's gazing up at the tinted face shield to the pilot pit as if this is your typical Tuesday afternoon. I know she can't see past the onyx glass, but it feels like she's looking into my soul. Well, hi, Dad, she says. Hello. The external speakers crackle in the computerized voice. I want to say her name, but can't. Flora inches closer, drops her backpack, puts a hand on my chromium shin. It's just like the pics and vids you sent. She's bouncing as she talks, but way, way bigger and dirtier. Yes, the computerized voice agrees. Where'd you come from? She asks, glancing past me. Where were you hiding? I raise a mech's right arm, a massive tungsten and tantalium alloy, and motion towards the Macmillan airstreeper camper. Oh, okay, she says with a nod. I drop a quick link to the local police scanner, waiting for the call to come in. I don't have much time. Some tightwads came by and said you deserted, Flora says as she flicks some of the dried mud off the outer leg casing. Tightwads? Funny word to describe the brigade reps. I wonder how much they told her. Yes, the computerized voice answers. Again, I want to say more to try and explain myself. Isn't that, well, isn't that like running away? She asks. Her deep brown eyes look up. They fill my internal view scream. I snap a pic and store it. Only six months have passed, but it seems like so much longer. She seems so much older. Every bit of beautiful as I remember. Yes, I have the computerized voice admit. With great caution, I move the Viathan's giant hand and extend one of the tentacle fingers. I gingerly brush the artificial appendage across Flora's cheek. Servos within the finger click and whirl. Flora doesn't flinch. Has she always been so brave? Sensors send back thermal readings, pulse rate, and even perspiration content. It's not the same as feeling her warmth, her soft flesh dimpling under my touch. You're working within that mind, huh? Flora says. Her tiny voice is rich with curiosity. I don't answer. She tries again. You know, with that brain wiring stuff you told me about. Fragments of a sunny morning. Flora and I were sitting out back, me on the steps, her practicing dribbling a basketball. An older kid at school had taught her a rough summation of cerebral implants and nano-cleated fibers used for motor control within the Vithan's neural interface. Stabbing wires into the controller's brain through the holes in the skull, or something like that. The crass description had frightened her. Actually, the access port runs smoothly between the second and third cervical vertebrae. The mesh of wires feed through the catheter that links to the motor cortex. I had made up a lie about that day about the neural stent nodes being more like braces on teeth and simplified how thoughts are translated from chemical reactions and electrical impulses to move the mech's limbs. There was no mention of the ghost line, the moment when you no longer control the machine consciously, but your thoughts and actions become fluid within the mech. Holographic icons appear with a mere thought. Veggie protein pumps in softly like a second heartbeat. You try not to think about the biomass recycling. All the odder sensation, 
echoes of consciousness that are difficult to decipher whether they came from you or the mech's onboard stream processor. Looming over her as she awaits an answer on this empty street, I find I'm just watching her. Yes, the computerized voice finally answers. But doesn't it hurt you? I can't help but pause a beat before answering. Enough for her to doubt me. No, I lie. Flora reaches up and puts a hand around the mech's finger. Another memory startles me, her tiny hand wrapping around my finger. She's an infant, crying as blood is drawn. The mech shudders, can't process the conflicting images. A piercing ache flames through my mind. The internal view screen flickers and then shuts off. I'm left in darkness. First, the upper torso locks into place, then the rest of the mech stops. I'm left in an awkward pose like a statue. No! I cry, but my voice has gone mute. Reassess the situation. Again, there's no sound. Only my phantom thoughts as I try to steady the machine. Ever since leaving my unit, I've been battling with a mech's onboard stream processor. The heavy damage from my last engagement left me mentally scattered, as if I'm teetering on the bridge of a ghost line with the machine. I'm jolted as I remember how a line of spiker projectiles honed in in our position. The sharp ammo rained down on us. Something has brought the memory forward. An ambush I can't quite recall. There's a split second when the mech was impaled, then an all-out jamble of metal clanging and grinding. The line of mechs falling over one another. Some mech shooting his railgun while twirling around, hitting allies. Stop. That's over. It was a blood. Remembering t- Flora's tiny bead of blood. A vision of my own blood pulled around me and mixed in with oils as my mech's lumbering hands pulled spiker projectiles from the outer hull of the pilot pit. Med nanos crawled across my entombed body to send multiple impact wounds. My organic arms locked within the machine's mechanical arms, stuck and unable to do anything as the med nanos crawled on me like a swarm of ants. Ants are needled into my skin and then latticed together to stabilize the bleeding at various entry points. The Vithan wouldn't allow me to access the command interface with such an erratic heart rate and place me under animate hibernation. The spiker projectiles had damned the encrypted comnet link to the CO unit as well. It was the first time I felt alone with the machine. Later, I woke to the mech running through an orchid of white blossoms. Must have accessed the auto-retreat protocol. Took me a good ten minutes to regain primary controls. The onboard stream processor was filled with gaps and error messages. Somehow I had survived. My only thoughts were to getting home to my wife and little girl. Actually, my hopes throughout that horror deployment were to return home as soon as possible. Flora. Back with Flora. Almost home. The old memory blinks away. Sunlight warms the mech's hull. Back in the present, operating systems reboot and the internal view screen lights up. The image of Flora examining me blurs and then refocuses. The sunny street comes into view. The rows of houses sharpen into a discernible image. Solar cells report fully functional, so my power feed isn't an issue. Flora places her palm on a face shield. Why aren't you talking? She asks. Her eyes shine in a way that tells me she knows what lies beneath. Damaged, the voice explains. I point to the stripped panel and exposed wiring at the mech's unit's left shoulder, 
but Flora is examining the charred holes and dents left by the spiker projectiles at the unit's chest and abdomen. The holes are gummed up with debris, but she's staring at them as if she can see through if she tries hard enough. Are you okay? She asks, as if she doesn't want to know the answer. The mech shudders. Flora disappears into a screen of static. Not again! All I want to do is see my daughter! I bring a pre-fed dialogue message to know Flora I'm okay. Just a hiccup in the system. Temporary. The computerized voice scratches out. Please stand by. Uh, okay, Flora says. She takes a step back. I push the memories aside and try to focus on her. I'm scared she'll run away. Her eyes linger on the entry point to the spiker projectiles. I'm scared that she's imagining what the razor-sharp slugs did to me. My mind races for a way to explain. A way to tell her why I can't open the pilot pit. Why she can't see what's inside. Not yet. Not until I'm healed. A sit rep from the med nanos has been elusive. Too much damage to internal systems to relay a report. Processing. Processing. Scrolls across the view screen whenever I push for more information. A warning on the local comm net bings. What now? The update flashes and then scrolls across my internal display. Someone's called in a military-grade mech roaming Athens Avenue. Three to five minutes before the nearest patrollers arrive. A little longer for any regional security rob. Police will come on ground. Specialized military will come by sky. After setting three of my external cameras to unre-admitting scan the surrounding area, I minimize surveillance feed and place it on the bottom right corner via picture-in-picture. I concentrate on my main view screen, trying my downdust to calm down. Once again, Flora's beautiful face fills my screen. I thought the mech crashed or something. You, you just froze up, she says. But you're back. Yes, the computerized voice answers. For a moment, we just gaze at each other. Flora breaks a silence. D- do you still have it? For a moment, I don't know what she means, but then I answer by playing the audio file of her singing Morning Away on my speakers loud enough for the neighbors to hear. Karen had put her up to it, a gift to get me through the tough times. Oh, jeez, Flora laughs. She's embarrassed. Oh, come on, stop. She jumps up and down and tries to cover the speakers with her hands. Her little palms aren't even close. I turn the song off just before the line. I hope to see that smile again before all this ends. The lyric rips at me every time. Proximity sensors pick up a thermal several yards away. Without moving the Viathan's face shield off Flora, I scan the area. It's just a kid hiding behind a ginkno tree in the corner. And the bracelet? Flora asks. I hesitate. There's a blank in my memory for a second, but then it all comes back to me. The friendship bracelet she weaved from a combination of our favourite colours, orange and green. Two parts orange, one for her, one for Karen. Yes, the computerized voice answers. I raise a mech's left arm and wriggle it. Another fragmented memory jars in me as it bubbles to the surface. Flora tying the bracelet in place before I climbed into the mech. I lower the mech's arm so it's next to her face. I reach over and try to pry open the access panel. The controller sleeve for the mech's arm isn't located on the wrist of the machine, but near the upper bicep. 
The mech struggles as if the joints are locking up. The screen flickers, threatening to go to blank. Damaged, the onboard stream process says without my command. I'm taken back. The mech isn't supposed to talk without my mental prompting. I keep calm and with a thought to the machine that I'm only going to show her my wrist. I can understand its trepidation at opening the pilot pit. There's too much damage to my body for that. It doesn't feel as though the mech is denying me access, but it sure doesn't feel granted. Reaching again, I concentrate and extend two of the tentacle fingers and unsheath its fine claws extensions and work the panel that covers the area over the bracelet. Again, the fingers slow. It's as if the mech's stalling. With great effort, I'm able to focus enough to pull the latches loose. My head's pounding. A stabbing pain behind my left eye flares up. I may not be able to expel myself from the machine, but I can at least show her I'm okay. Show her I still wear the bracelet. The panel resists at first, due to wear and tear. The fine claw works under and shakily lifts the plated metal. I don't... Flora stammers as she examines it. I, I don't understand. The view screen flickers. Hold, the computerized voice says on its own. To Flora, or me, I can't tell. It's a misplaced battle command. Daddy? She asks, her voice shaking and distant. I try to look at the open panel, but the mech won't turn the arm my way. Show it! I scream, but then I remember I have no voice. I picture the arm covered in med nanos. A frightful sight. Or worse yet, did I just show Flora my arm all twisted and mangled? I made a mistake opening the panel, but I didn't know my own arm had been wounded in any way. Concentrating hard, I finally get the arm to drop low enough for me to see. The view screen is blurred at first. I keep the cameras locked on my exposed arm, willing the image to clear. It does. The image is sharp and crisp. No! I cry in silence. No voice. The Mexican computerized voice says nothing. A 180 away from Flora. The Mex giant steel talon feet stomp awkwardly. I hurry to a park sedan and rip the driver's side mirror. Both Mex arms move in jagged jolts. Simple movement commands have become studded. Please, no, I beg. My gut tells me I know what's coming. With one hand holding the mirror in place, I pull at the pilot pit shell to rip it open, to verify what I saw. I feel the mech's reluctance. My reluctance. Not this time. You will show me. Floor's crawling behind me, so I keep walking away with my back turned to her. The onyx face shield opens. I look at the view screen as if it's relaying a picture from some other mech. I, I can't believe what I see. The pilot pit is empty. Nothing. No nano-strung body. No machine-assisted respiratory pump. No me. An empty, controlless pit. Dry blood caked in the hollowed-out impressions in the seat's cushion. I run a tentacled finger along the hole and push inside. Days old. Maybe longer. Daddy? Flora's behind me. What's happening? I slam the pilot pit shut and turn around. What's wrong? She asks. No. 
my computerized voice answers. I stumble back. Stay clear. Flora keeps coming. A black and white Capri stops at the end of the avenue. The lights atop flash red and blue. He's blocking off the street. I kneel down, keeping my mech's hand held firm against a pilot pit. The girl creeps up and stares at me. No, she's my Flora, dammit. She's still my Flora. I flee a flow of information surges, corrupted files are granted access. The Viathan's processor, my processor, relents. There's no more denial within the machine. No more denying by me, the machine. Like suppressed memories, they flood in all at once. My last gurgling breath taking three days to cease. Then nano's keeping me alive. A disruption in the encrypted comnet, leaving the mech's onboard stream processor in a state of flux. The auto-retreat command. The continuous upload of everything I am to the mech's mainframe. First protocol. Save the controller. The mech's computer panicking because I wouldn't provide strategic intel. Instead, the processor overloaded and said all my thoughts of those last 72 hours. But all my thoughts were a perpetual loop of Flora and Karen and my unrelenting hope to get home. The mech ran for days, stopping only to recharge solar cells. My need to get home, feeding the machine, rewriting protocols. I remember burying the flesh and blood body near some mossy oaks. Loose dirt covering the arm with a bracelet in an unmarked grave. The memory must have been locked away by the onboard stream processor. Or was it locked away by me? I I can't tell the difference. Flora's palm is back on my face shield. She glances back. Now two police cars. Damaged, I mutter. Daddy? She says. Damaged, I repeat. I I can't tell her I'm gone. It's It's not the truth. Her eyes are staring back at me. Daddy, she says, putting the Viathan. Me. Don't worry, it'll be okay. Her words warn me. The fluidity of the mech's controls return as I accept what I am. I put out a hand. She places her hand in it. Okay, I say. Okay, she agrees. Her eyes are wet. She takes a breath and says, I'm just glad you're not lost like they said. Of course. They would have told her I was missing in action or killed in action. Northeast radar blips. An El Hornet is on its way. Military grade aviation mech. I rise and pull my hand away from Flora. Can't. Stay. I point to the sky. She backs away and says, I'll, I'll tell Mom I saw you, Okay. Staring at the small creature, I can't understand how she continues to be so amazing. I take another pick. Yes, I say back. The old hornet screeches overhead. I hit my own jump jets and skip over four blocks. The contrail overhead arcs as the oil helmet comes around for another pass. I anticipate the move and hit the jump jets a second time to intercept the old hornet's course. There's a series of pops as I send the fullest aid of countermeasures behind me. My legs pound off the paved roads onto dirt roads. The Ohorn is still looking for me through the cloud of smokes as I reach the rolling foothills. Moments later, I'm reaching a line of redwoods. The comnet is clear. 
I find a clearing of granite rocks and sit down to refuel my solar cells. They don't need it. I just want to sit under the sun. Listening to the soft clicks and whirls within the mech, I think about what I am. It occurs to me how hollowed out my memories are. The onboard stream processor gives me flashes of my CO barking orders in those final days. There's some battle vids. Some program items of functionality. A large chunk for primary systems maintenance. And then there's a magical space that just keeps cycling. Memories of Flora gazing up at me. And there you go. Big thank you to Doug. Doug, thank you so much. It's lovely to have you on. Do you know what I mean? It really is. It's just going places. Honestly, your writing is just superb. And Jeremy, put on another little quote there. Thank you. So okay. Must be working a little trooper for Starship. So, Jeremy, thank you so much, man. What a narration, lad. I wouldn't dare do it, me. You've got more balls than I've got, lad. Well done. So, like I say, it is the end of the month. So that is only one thing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Happy New Year's greetings and annular manifestations, my grammatronically Zarkreptian listeners. And welcome to this January 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this diminutively minuscule titbit of a science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. I hope the New Year's treating everyone okay. So far, I can't complain very much, but we'll see what the new semester brings. I get the impression that you guys are now expecting a winner each month for Idiot Scientist of the Month. That may be a little harder than you think, believe it or not. But I've got one for you. Although I must question if being a dishonest scumbag is equitable to being an idiot. There is a fine line that separates stupid and evil, and I will tell you in a bit which side of the line this month's winner falls upon. Dr. Fazlul Sarkar, cancer researcher formerly working for Wayne State University, was found by an investigative committee to have engaged 
in research conduct. And he has racked up his 19th paper retraction. This was reported last week by Retraction Watch. Yes, that's 19 papers that were complete BS, folks. Many pretty decent scientists may publish that many papers over a good portion of their careers, depending on how long it takes to gather data. But this schmuck just decided he would take the shortcut of all that boring data gathering and, and laboratory work and just make stuff up. The good Dr. Sarkar has become famous in the last several years, both because of his misconduct of making up research and his unsuccessful 2016 lawsuit against pubpeer.com. The lawsuit sought to force the online discussion site to reveal the identity of commenters who alleged misconduct on his part. Sarkar's newest retraction from last month is of a 2012 study in the journal Cancer Letters entitled Increased RAS GTPase Activity is Regulated by MicroRNAs that Can Be Attenuated by CDF Treatment in Pancreatic Cancer Cells. The retraction notice explains that the Wayne State investigation found a discrepancy between the originally collected data from Sarkar's lab notebooks and those reported in two of the paper's figures. Two years ago, when Sarkar was first canned, Wayne State University advocated in a report that 42 of his papers be retracted because they're complete nonsense. Of those 42, more than half of those crappy publications are still out there in the publication universe and continue to plague anybody innocent or ignorant enough to have faith in this pathetic moron. Let me make an editorial comment here on how low I consider this guy. Now, if I was to make up laboratory data, it would be a serious breach of the public trust, and plain dishonest, and stupid. But I'm a plant biologist, and I do obscure work on protein evolution. I am not likely to actually hurt anyone if I fantasize about how some esoteric gene evolved in some esoteric planet species. However, if you are going to make up data, why in the bloody hell would you become a cancer researcher? Your results mean something to the survival of very sick people around the world. If you concoct lab results, you could hurt or cause the death of hundreds, perhaps thousands of people over decades who are already suffering. This is why I place Dr. Sarkar firmly on the side of evil as opposed to stupid. You wonder why we don't have a cure for cancer yet? Well, this submoron is one reason. Apparently, he decided his career and grants and publications were more important than any harm he could do to the world at large and cancer research for decades to come. You think that professors should be held to a higher standard? Well, I do. The last few months, you will notice that lots of powerful men in Hollywood have been accused of being sexual harassers, the most famous being the movie producer Harvey Weinstein. Believe it or not, professors and PIs at big universities can be just as powerful as anybody in Hollywood. This gets us into an entirely new area that few people talk about, sexual harassment by university faculty. Now remember, 
If you take a university class from someone, then you are essentially at their mercy as far as your grades are concerned. If they are dishonest or manipulative, then you may be in serious trouble. This is worse if you're a foreign national and working in their laboratory and doing work for your PhD. If you just get overworked or spend an extra year or two in lab servitude, then you may be the lucky one. Dishonest people in power will gravitate toward taking advantage of those who have no power, whether they are famous actors, directors, or professors. And the industry in this case, academia, will often continue to protect them. The Journal of the Scientist had an extensive article on this type of abuse in their December issue. The author of the story, Anna Aswalinsky, cited many instances of abuse. For example, in 2016 at the University of Rochester, grad students and current and former professors within the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences filed complaints accusing Professor Florian Yeager of sexual harassment and intimidation. But the university cleared him of violating the school's harassment and discrimination policy even after an appeal by several of the faculty members. Worse, the university promoted him to full professor, even while the internal investigation was ongoing. This September, after the accusers submitted formal complaints to the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the university finally placed Yeager on leave, and the University of Rochester president said he regretted promoting Yeager in the first place. Here's another one. Dr. Jeffrey Marcy, a former University of California astronomy professor, was found to have sexually harassed multiple students over the span of a decade. Although the university's own internal proceedings took place in 2015, Marcy was not penalized until the records were published in 2016, and then he received only a mild reprimand by the vice provost of Berkeley's faculty, involving an agreement that held Marcy to, quote, clear expectations, unquote, regarding his future interactions with students. Otherwise, he could get suspended or fired in the future. It was only after subsequent public outrage, including a letter to the New York Times, penned by 278 of Marcy's peers, who expressed concern that Marcy had been portrayed in too positive a light, that Marcy finally resigned. Here's one more. The University of Southern California reportedly did nothing for years about complaints of Keck School of Medicine Dean Carmen Pugliafito. Apparently, he was big into illegal drug use, and also apparently he mistreated his colleagues. Again, it took news reports that made the university administration look like they were equally guilty that forced Dean Pugliafito to resign. Why does this happen? Why let these ratbags get away with murder? Now, the article suggests that part of the reason why universities are not eager to remove high-ranking professors has to do with maintaining the ability of their faculty to secure grants. The article states, quote, The first thought is always to protect the brand. As federal and state dollars dry up and grant money slows, schools need to strive to protect and enhance their reputations, making the management of misbehaving and exploitative faculty members sensitive to the financial woes of the institution, unquote. I guess when millions of dollars are at stake, university administrators are no different than somebody running a movie studio. 
it's loathsome to think that PIs with lots of grants or, or who bring fame and visibility to an academic institution can just slither their way through the current system. Ew. All right. Let's, let's climb out of the muck here and talk about real science before I'm nauseated. Ugh. Okay. Having been in Oregon within the last few months, I once again am worried about the legalization of marijuana across the U.S. I'm not worried about the ethical moral issues. I'm much more worried about the long-term health effects of making pot legal for home use. Compared to tobacco, not much is known about the long-term effects of cannabis use. I mean, partly because of the U.S. is classified as a Schedule One drug by the DEA. That means it has high potential for abuse and no demonstrated medicinal value. Ironically, though users are finding it easier to obtain nowadays, researchers who want to study cannabis face onerous bureaucratic procedures to officially access it. Obviously, if you have trouble getting cannabis, then you are going to have a hard time demonstrating any medicinal value of cannabis. It's also difficult to determine any threats to the public health that legalization may bring. In a 2017 article in Trends in Neuroscience, Dr. Yasmin Hurd, director of the Addiction Institute at Mount Sinai Behavioral Health System, did studies on cannabis and the epigenetic changes that may come about by long-term use. Remember, epigenetics deals with changes in your genome made by alterations in the environment around you and that they can be passed along to the next generation. Hertz team found that tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, which is the psychoactive component of marijuana, increases heroin self-administration in adults who were exposed to THC as adolescents. Hurd explains, quote, Marijuana in the young brain acts like a neurobiological gateway. But it's worse than that. Our results show that THC even has cross-generational effects. Adult rats, whose parents were exposed to THC as teen rats, self-administer more heroin, suggesting that THC affects the germline itself, unquote. Heard was not surprised by this because apparently epigenetic changes aren't unique to marijuana use. Hertz team published a paper last year that showed a pattern of epigenetic alterations in brains of human heroin users that affected the activity of genes that regulate signaling. Hertz team found that epigenetic changes in rat brains were similar to those in human heroin-addicted brains. The upshot is that both your heroin and cannabis usage may lead your young children down the same path eventually. This is the first time anyone has shown this possibility. Next story, something a bit more happy. This is an update on the Tabby's star mystery. You may remember that I talked about the mystery of its flickering in real time. One of the theories explaining that flickering was a gigantic alien structure orbiting the star and causing it to wink in and out. Well, the star's most recent winks show that the dimming is from small dust particles surrounding it. A team of more than 200 scientists and amateur astronomers reported this result on January 3rd at the online journal archive.org. The oddball star, officially named KIC 8462852, is best known for its sudden drops in brightness. Astronomers have invoked everything from evaporating comets to an enormous edifice built by intelligent aliens 
to explain the sporadic winks. Back in March 2016, Dr. Tabitha Boyajian, for whom the star is named, of Louisiana State University, began trying to catch light dips in the act using two automatic ground-based telescopes with the Las Cumbres Observatory, a worldwide network of telescopes. On May 18, 2017, as Tabby's star started to dim, at least 12 other telescopes rushed to follow up. That event turned out to be the first of four distinct light dips between May and the end of December, when the star moved behind the sun from Earth's perspective. Boyajian and colleagues report that the star grew dimmer in blue wavelengths than in red ones. That dimming is best explained by dust particles less than a micrometer in size. She says, quote, If a large opaque object, say an alien megastructure, was blocking the star, then multiple telescopes should see the same level of dimming across many wavelengths of light. An earlier paper reported the same wavelength difference in the star's dimming spanning several years, but this is the first time it's been seen for the short-term dips, unquote. However, every time you come up with an explanation, you create other difficulties. The space dust raises a new mystery. That dust should not just stay there. The dust is small enough that the star's radiation, the solar wind, should blow it away. So something must be constantly creating more dust. Boyajian explains, None of the ideas we have at this point are really great at putting all the pieces together. Yeah, it's dust, but where is it coming from? That's still up in the air. Unquote. Since we were talking about astronomy, why don't we stick to that topic? Ever wonder what the inside of a dwarf star might look like? I have, especially since I recently narrated E.E. E. Doc Smith's Skylark 3. Smith actually talked about this back at the beginning of the last century. There's even a scene where two characters from the novel are projected into the center of a white dwarf to gather star material. So how accurate was the imagination of old Doc Smith? Eh, well, not bad for a flight of fancy from the 1920s. Dr. Nomi Jim Michel and colleagues of the Institute of Research in Astrophysics and Planetology have finally probed the inner life of a collapsed dead star. Tiny changes in a white dwarf's brightness reveal that the stellar corpse has more oxygen in its core than expected. This was reported by the researchers in the journal Nature in January 8th. The finding could change theories of how stars live and die and may have implications for measuring the expansion of the universe. As a star ages, it sheds most of its gas into space until all that remains is a dense core of carbon and oxygen, the ashes of a lifetime of burning helium, you see. That core, plus a thin shellacking of helium, is called, well, a white dwarf. But the proportion of those elements relative to one another was uncertain. Luckily, some white dwarfs encode their inner nature on their surface. These stars change their brightness in response to internal vibrations. Astrophysicists can infer a star's internal structure from the vibrations. Similar to how geologists learn about the Earth's interior by measuring seismic waves during an earthquake. Jean Michelle and her colleagues used data from NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, which watched stars unblinkingly to track periodic changes in their brightness. The Kepler telescope monitored the white dwarf KIC 0862601, 
which is located 1,375 light years away from here in the constellation Cygnus. And the telescope studied it for 23 months. The observations provided the highest precision data ever on tiny changes in a white dwarf's brightness and indirectly its vibrations. Gia Michelle then analyzed how the changes in vibrations related to the makeup of the core. The team ran millions of simulations looking for one that reproduced the exact light changes that the Kepler observed. One simulation fit the data perfectly, showing that the white dwarf had the expected carbon and oxygen core with a thin shell of helium. The model suggested that the core was about 86% oxygen, which is 15% greater than physicists had predicted previously. That suggests that something about the processes that convert helium to carbon and oxygen, or mix elements in the star's core during its active lifetime, must somehow boost the amount of oxygen. No one is really sure whether this is important or not. Gia Michel says, quote, Our results may someday help reveal details of what dark energy is made of. However, just how much bearing that extra oxygen will have on cosmology remains to be seen. Unquote. Next story. As regular listeners to the podcast know, my dad has had worsening Alzheimer's for the last several years. No treatment has helped, and several actually have made it worse. There's still no clear evidence how much of Alzheimer's cause is genetic and how much is environmental, although my mother will insist that my dad's years as a pharmaceutical research chemist is the main reason for his illness. Will I get it? I have no idea. I may turn into a potato brain eventually, eventually being if and when I get into my 80s like my father. However, frankly, it terrifies me every time I forget where my car keys are, although I have been told by psychology friends that this is normal for middle age, and it would be more of an indicator of Alzheimer's if you forgot what your car keys were for than just misplacing them. That seems like rather cold comfort to me. However. A new drug has emerged that may reverse Alzheimer's, although, as usual, do not get too excited yet. Studies in a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease have shown how a drug that was originally developed to treat diabetes demonstrates what researchers in the UK and China call, quote, clear promise as a treatment for Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative disorders in humans. The studies, led by Dr. Christian Holscher of Lancaster University, confirmed that the Alzheimer's mice treated using a triple receptor agonist showed, quote, significantly reversed memory loss, unquote, as well as reduced neuroinflammation and oxidative stress, lower amyloid plaque load in the brain, and increased levels of brain-derived neurotropic factor which is a key growth factor that protects synaptic function. The paper reporting on this breakthrough was published in the journal Brain Research last month. Remember I said that no one quite understands the genetics and environmental risks of Alzheimer's? Well, one of those risks seems to be type 2 diabetes. That association motivated Holscher to investigate whether anti-diabetic drugs might also be effective against Alzheimer's. Studies have shown that the hormones glucagon-like peptide 1 and glucose-dependent insulotropic polypeptide 
which have anti-diabetic properties, can play a neuroprotective role in the brain and have demonstrated promising effects in animal models of Alzheimer's. Holscher's team turned to a triple receptor agonist that activates glucagon-like one peptide and glucose-dependent insulotropic polypeptide and glucagon receptors. The drug had previously been in development for treating diabetes, but hadn't been assessed for any neuroprotective properties. They tested the drug in a mouse model of Alzheimer's that demonstrated the hallmark symptoms of the disease, including memory loss, brain inflammation, amyloid plaque formation, synaptic loss, etc. The drug significantly reversed memory loss in mice through a triple method of action. This is the first time that a triple receptor drug has been used, which acts in multiple ways to protect the brain from degeneration. It combines the activation of three different growth factors. And problems with growth factor signaling have been shown to be impaired in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. This is great news. The results show that a daily injection of the drug reversed memory loss in Alzheimer mice, which was assessed in a spatial water maze test. Holscher says, quote, Furthermore, treatment reduced the total amount of beta amyloid, reduced neuroinflammation, and oxidative stress in the cortex and hippocampus. The results demonstrate for the first time that the novel GLP-GIP-GCG receptor agonist has clear neuroprotective effects in the APP-PS1 mouse model of Alzheimer's, unquote. I'm happy to say that according to the paper, clinical trials are now underway to investigate the neuroprotective effects of the new drug in patients with Alzheimer's and patients with Parkinson's disease. The researchers acknowledge that further dose-response tests will be needed, as well as direct comparisons with other drugs, to determine whether the new drug is more effective against neurodegenerative disorders than previously developed drugs. I find this awesome since it's the first serious breakthrough in Alzheimer treatment in years, as far as I've seen. If it works its way through the U.S. Food and Drug Administration quickly enough, it may even help my dad. All right, last story of the night. Once again, we turn to the science of sex, gender, and reproduction. Why? Well, why not? It certainly interests us all, doesn't it? All right. For years, I have been teaching my genetics classes that the default in human development is the female body. That in order to get a male body, you need to induce male development. And that the Y chromosome has all the inductive capabilities to produce a male. No Y chromosome or any part of it, and you do not get a male. Well, as usual with those things that you believe are the gospel truth, it's more complicated than what I have believed for years and what I have taught for years. A little more complicated. So it appears that the female developmental pathway is not simply a default. There is a protein called CoopTF2, which is necessary to eliminate male reproductive tissue from female mouse embryos. Researchers reported this in the August 18th edition of the journal Science. The study was done by Dr. Humphrey Yao of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences in Durham, North Carolina. 
The new research overturns the idea of females being the default and shows that making female reproductive organs is a more active process that involves dismantling a primitive male tissue called the Wolfian duct first. Here's the basic anatomy lesson of the day. In males, the Wolfian duct develops into the parts that are needed to ejaculate sperm. That includes the epididymis, the vas deferens, and the seminal vesicles. In females, a similar embryonic tissue called the Mullerian duct develops into the fallopian tubes, uterus, and vagina. Both duct tissues are present in early embryos. Seventy years ago, in a classic developmental biology study by French endocrinologist Alfred Joost, he found that the testes make testosterone and an anti-Mullerian hormone to maintain the Wolfian duct and suppress female tissue development. If those hormones are missing, the Wolfian duct degrades and an embryo by default develops as female. That result is what has been in every textbook since, and that is what I have taught. But it is more complex than that. Yao and colleagues set out to learn how tissues on the outside of the early ducts communicate with the tube's lining. But they discovered something more than that. The coop TF2 protein is produced in that outer layer, and Yao suspected that it was involved somehow in signaling with the lining. He just didn't know how. So he and his research colleagues blocked the communication in early female mouse embryos' reproductive tissue by just removing the gene that produces COOP-TF2. To the team's surprise, the Wolfian duck remained in the female mouse along with the female Mullerian duct. That shouldn't happen, according to the textbooks. Yao says, quote, We were very confused and just scratching our heads, unquote. Searching for an explanation, Yao and his colleagues first tested whether removing the coop TF2 changed the ovaries to produce testosterone like testes do. And testosterone could feed the male tissue and allow it to persist. Well, at least that's what they thought. But that was not the case. Yao says it was a no-go. Quote, nope. The ovary was just like any other ovary. There was nothing weird or wrong about it. We were just shocked. This could not happen. Worse, we checked in further experiments and found that no stray testosterone was responsible for the male tissue sticking around, unquote. So what was going on? CoopTF2 appears to be the foreman, so to speak, of a biochemical wrecking crew that demolishes the Wolfian duct in females. Without the protein barking orders, the demolition crew does nothing, and the male duct is not torn down. The signal that triggers COOP-TF2 production and activity aren't really yet understood, so it's going to get even more complex. As usual, there's a caveat to these studies because they were done with mice, and it may not work quite the same with other mammals. However, Yao seems confident that while the study used mice, COOP-TF2 probably works the same way in other mammals, including humans. There are many genetic faults that can lead to so-called sex reversal, but mutations in COOP-TF2 could be an entirely new class of defect that human geneticists may want to look into. 
All right, then. That's all for me for now. As always, take care. Do not abuse your power if you have any. Remember, to make a girl, you need sugar spice and coop TF2. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Knock it out the park, Jim. Knock it out the park. Listen, thank you so much. So, that is the end of show 522. I hope you enjoyed it. Listen, do, do support with Do you know what I mean? That's the goal, to get up to 500 on Patreon. And even if it's just a dollar, two dollars, do you know what I mean? It would just... What's that, man? Honestly, it's just like it's ch- loop, jump change on your desk. Support with and that will just kind of rock solid, you know, keep it going. So, look after yourself. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Time soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. Best I move slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm